Welcome to the State Bar of Texas podcast, your monthly source for conversations and curated content to improve your law practice with your host, Rocky Deer. Hello and welcome to another episode of the State Bar of Texas podcast. We are recording live from our State Bar annual meeting in Austin, Texas. This is your host, Rocky Deer. Joining me now, we have Bill Barr two-time former Attorney General of the United States. Bill, welcome. Thank you, Rocky. Good to be here. So if this is the first time you're you're listening to our, our podcast with Bill Barr, then you may not know this, but we also have a podcast that has come out in which we were talking upstairs during the luncheon, hmm. during the Thursday luncheon. And there we talked a little bit about, about policies, about America, the things you might expect that we would talk to Bill Barr about. But what we didn't talk about was who Bill Barr is, Bill Barr the person. So I thought we'd get to know you a little bit a little bit better, Bill, if that's sure, okay with you. Sure, thank you, Rocky, yeah. So you've come up with your memoir, One Damn Thing After Another. Why did you call it that? I know the answer, but I want to hear it from you. Right, so the first time I was at the Department of Justice, which was yeah. under H.W. Bush, I uh, saw the former AGs uh, right. refer to the job as one damn thing after another. And it goes back to... a. Uh, incident that happened with Ed Levy when he came in to be the, uh, he was the attorney general under uh, Gerald Ford. Okay. And then later when Reagan brought in William French Smith to be the attorney general, Smith went to visit with Ed Levy uh, to find out what the job was like. Yeah. Now, Levy was an academician. Hmm. He was the dean of, of the law school at University of Chicago and then the president of the University of Chicago. Oh, wow. And he, he I was, went there. And that's, he, that's my school. Yeah, and he smoked okay. a pipe and he had the, yeah. uh, the tweed jacket and so forth. And William French Smith was ex- expecting a big lecture about uh, you know separation of powers and the rule of law. And he said... Ed, you know, so tell me about the job of attorney general. And he said, it's one damn thing after another. So from then on, attorneys general have referred to the job that way. You do too? Do you agree with that? Oh, that, it understates it, okay. at least in my case. <laughs> so, you, you know, it's, I'll tell you what was, what jumped out to me immediately. So first of all, you use a lot of big words in your, in your book. I had to have a thesaurus and a dictionary right next to me because you're obviously a very smart guy, but so you went, you went to private school, you went to Columbia. I can also use some short Anglo-Saxon words, too. Well, but I'm afraid I won't understand those either, <laughs> Bill. You're giving me too much credit. I, I mean, we've already talked for a little while, and yet you still don't know me. Yeah. You still don't know me. But it kind of jumped out to me. So you played the bagpipes growing up, mm-hmm. and you still do sometimes, right? Yes. Yep. You, you picked that back up after a number of years. Yeah. And, then, and then you went to Columbia. Mm-hmm. You studied Chinese, Chinese mm-hmm. and Chinese politics and their mm-hmm. history. And then you went on to Fordham Law School at night. No, no, no. No, it was George Washington. Yeah. Well, George Washington. I, well, I went into the CIA. Yes. And then at night, I went to law school at George Washington. And you came out number one in your class. Mm-hmm. So clearly, you are a gigantic nerd. Like, what's up with this? I mean, this is th- th- this is like cranial power that I don't think I'm... I, I don't think I'm a nerd. I don't think I'm a nerd. You, you don't think you're, you're really smart? My brother is the smart one in the family. He's a theoretical particle physicist. He's a particle physicist? Yeah, from Princeton. So he's very smart. Your dad was a professor, right? Yes. And remind me your, your mother. She I know. was a teacher too. She taught English. So what do you think? And, and I know you've got three daughters, all of whom are lawyers, very well accomplished. Right. So what do you think is the key to, to raising smart kids? I mean, you, were, you, you had parents raise you as a smart kid, and then you raised three very brilliant kids. What's the key to it? When I was growing up, 
my parents, we had dinner conversation. We were encouraged to debate and talk about issues of the day. We didn't have very much small talk. You know, we'd talk about the New York Yankees for about five minutes, and then it was on to, you know, national. Not the Mets. Not the Mets. Not the Mets. We were Yankees. Okay. That's... (laughs) (laughs) That's fighting words for some people. Not for me. I don't care. But yeah. And so we were always encouraged to uh, debate. And we we were taught that how important the dialectic was, the give and take of ideas. And um, so I've always uh, always enjoyed that. And, uh, you know, all my brothers were good writers and speakers and so forth. I was probably the stupidest of the lot. (laughs) Well... And that's why you went into government service. That's right. That, that no, makes sense no. now. That's why I went to law school. It's, it's all coming, <laughs> There you go. It's all coming together. It all makes sense. This is something that I don't know that we didn't get a chance to talk about it upstairs. And I don't know that, we, that you talked a whole lot about it in your book. I know you dedicated your book to your wife, Chris. Mm-hmm. And so as of this conversation, you are one day away from your 50th anniversary. Tell us about the role that she has played in your success. Because, I mean, you were away for long periods. She's raising three kids. Was there never any any tension there about the fact that you're gone for so long a period? Or was it just part of the part of the deal that she knew she was getting into? I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear more about her role. Yeah, so I, I mean, we got married young. I had just turned 23 and had gotten my master's degree and was heading off for CIA. Right. And she uh, had just graduated. She was 21 from college. Right. And, you know, we shared the same values and outlook on life. And I would say she has very traditional values. She also had ambition. Uh, she was... It's going to library science, right? Yeah. She wanted to be a librarian. She was a voracious reader. But you're right. I mean, she bore the brunt of raising the children. I mean, for 15 years after I was AG the first time, I was 41 then, I went up and worked for a telecom company in New York Mm -hmm. as the general counsel. It's a tiny uh, one nobody's ever heard of. Verizon, (laughs) yeah. yeah. And uh, I commuted up there for 14 years. The family stayed in in the Washington, D.C. area in Virginia. And uh, so there was a big burden on her, but uh, we always had this. Was there never like any any bickering or any fighting or any resistance? Of course, every couple of fights. Not, <laughs> I wouldn't say resistance, but you know, she she was a good sport about it. Always, we had this running joke, which was, uh, you know, the first the first time I became attorney general. H. W. was there up on the stage sure. at the department, and I turned to her and I said, Chris, you know. I've always promised you that after I finish law school or after I get on, you know, do uh, my clerkship or after I have my first year as associate or after I make partner or after I Mm -hmm. will settle down and smell the flowers. And then I said, Chris, I promise you that after I get this attorney general ship under my belt. Yeah, we're done. We'll take it easy. (laughs) So we never did. Famous last words. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder then that, you know, through all this, what advice would you give to young couples today? Because, you know, obviously it's very different now. You know, oftentimes both husband and wife work, and it's not unusual for them both to take active roles in yeah. in raising kids. With that, if somebody wants to achieve that level of success, how do they do it and still balance the home life? Because arguably yeah. you didn't you didn't have to balance that side of it. You had you had a great partner who was taking the brunt of that. Yeah. So, and she was also working during much of that time as a librarian mm. So, um, at Georgetown University. And then all my three girls went to the same K-12 
Catholic girls' school, K through 12, and she was she transferred to be a librarian there so she could mm-hmm. be with them during the day. So she worked and she uh, you know bore the full brunt of uh, running the family. I don't know. I think you know my friends and I have frequently talked about this, and our expectations in life were never to you know have fun, you know, be re- <laughs> you know feel fulfilled. Or it wasn't a focus on, okay. you know, I'm not getting anything out of it or whatever. It yeah. was always your obligation uh, is to raise a family and whatever sacrifices are necessary for the family. And you just never thought of whether you, you personally were feeling fulfilled. So there was a, a certain stoicism involved in the, you know, the worldview that me and my contemporaries had. Are you still stoic or are you now at a point where you're focused on... I wouldn't have done it any other way. I, I mean, I don't. I consider it a great blessing, uh, the life I've had, and I think my wife, uh, when we talk about it, she, I think, feels the same way. Well, I mean, now at this stage in your life, are you now shifting focus and saying, "Look, let's be fulfilled and let's go and have some fun," or is there still a level of stoicism well, that, inherent in the way you guys? Well, I felt that way right before I agreed to go in the Trump administration. <laughs> so, you know. That lasted just a few uh, years, but right. right now we are going to try to smell some of the flowers, but I'm still staying active in public affairs. I feel very concerned about the direction of the country and uh, the future, and I have seven grandchildren so far, and I'm worried. Congratulations. About, thank you, and I'm worried about their future as well, so I think I should stay involved. So, I am, How worried should we be about the future of the country, do you think, in your view? Do you think we can we can fix this? Do you think we can get to a point where we're the United States again, or are we going to continue to be divided moving forward, in your view? I think, you know, it's possible over time to become much more united and to, you know, move more uh, toward a politi- uh, to a less polarized and vituperative politics. But it's going to take two things. One, it'll take some really good leaders, but it would also take the wisdom and common sense of the American people and to finally get beyond anger and passion because politics today, a lot of the politics, I would say on the, on the left and the right is becoming the politics of pandering, mm-hmm. of inflaming people's passions so you get support from them, but it doesn't yeah. channel those passions in any positive direction. And interestingly, it's always people on one side saying the other side is pandering. And it's yeah. so, and I don't think people are taking enough stock in how much pandering they themselves are doing. It's kind of an interesting, well, interesting situation. Right. So people, you know, what I say, look, anger isn't a strategy or a policy. It's mm. it's basically self indulgence. You know, you sit there sort of nurturing your feeling of outrage, but it doesn't get anywhere. And people have to come to the realization that if we are to stay together as a country, and and we have been, the, in my opinion, the most successful country in world history. Uh, and we have so much going for us, and we're, we're committing national suicide for no reason. And people have to say to themselves, look, if we're going to stay together, we do have to live with other people. We need to reach some kind of politics that keeps us together. And uh, I think if, if that happens, you know, we, we could have a bright future. One thing I wanted to, and I want to make sure I don't forget to ask you this, because I've been dying to ask you this question. What was it like the first time you walked in the White House and into the Oval Office. Presumably this was, I guess, was this in the Reagan administration? What was that like? It's funny you say that because 
I remember distinctly the first time I went into the Oval Office to meet with Reagan. And it was like an outer body experience. It was almost a dream. I'm serious. It was like a yeah. dreamlike state. And you didn't fully, you didn't feel that you were connected to. It was almost like a dream going on. Was he charismatic in person? Oh, he was very charismatic, but also just going into the Oval Office. I was 26 or so. Wow. Okay. No, wait. I'm sorry. I was, I was 31. I was 31. That's right. Way to make me feel totally unaccomplished. Yeah. Thanks, Bill. No, no. <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was quite... And I can understand why people who have never done that before, you know, yeah. would, would you know would be in, somewhat intimidated. Absolutely, by it. yeah. And uh, you know, if a president calls someone in for the first time and is telling them to do something, there's a you know tendency to go with the flow. But after that, you know, I'd been in m more times with Reagan, but also especially with H.W. and then later, of course, very regularly with Trump. By the time Trump was there, it was not as big a deal. And I think that's actually good because you're not bowled over by the, you know, well, you, you stood up to Trump a few times, in the, according to the book. I mean, yeah. you, you spoke your mind. Yeah. One thing that kind of struck me, too, was that when you're talking about H.W. Bush, that section of the book is relatively short. It wasn't, there wasn't as much, I guess, drama I mean, you, you describe no. him as genteel, and it's. It, I I I detected a hint of real affection for President Bush. For oh him. yeah, I mean that's how I got into government. My big break, you know. Part of all life is luck, chance, even bad luck or good luck, mm -hmm. you know. And uh, I was very lucky because I decided to go to CIA. I was working in CIA. I was going to law school largely because my mother wanted me to go to law school. Yeah. Just to have an extra dimension. And so I go to CIA and after a year and a half or two, uh, all these investigations of CIA emerged and Bush came from China being, right. being the to our top representative in China and came to run CIA, and then I got to work directly for Bush because he had to go up to Capitol Hill a lot, and I was helping him on mm -hmm. a lot of that stuff. So he, I had a relationship with him, and that turned into eventually, you know, him putting me at the Justice Department when he became president. So uh, I have a lot of affection and respect for him. They don't make people like that anymore. But one of the reasons the portion on Bush is shorter. Uh, is that the publisher wanted me to spend 70% of the <laughs> book on, on the Trump years. Got it. Okay. So I was sort of under constraint, and I tried to deal with some of the highlights and so forth. But that was a, you know, an exhilarating time. It's interesting what you say about luck, because that's something a lot of, a lot of speakers don't spend a lot of time talking about. So if you had to put percentages to it, I think by any objective measure, whether somebody is a Bill Barr fan or whether they're a detractor, there's no question you've been very successful in your chosen profession. How much of that is due to luck and how much of that is inherent talent, intelligence, you know, all the other things that were just part of you? What percentage is luck, I guess? Is well, it's hard to talk, you know, it's hard to talk about my own situation. I think luck is a, is a significant part of it, but I also think, you know, uh, in going through life, people shouldn't feel that everything that happens, good or bad, is just because of luck. You know, and a lot of it is being prepared for opportunities and also making opportunities, just like in a football play. Sometimes mm -hmm. you make the opportunity. And, and I think you can do that. The other thing is, I think depending on the field, success requires different 
mixtures of, of strengths. You know, some fields, you know, very, mm -hmm. very abstract and intellectual. It doesn't matter whether you can read or write. Mm -hmm. What matters is whether you can sit there and manipulate abstract concepts. In other areas, communications, interpersonal skills, you know, being able to speak well may, may make the difference. So, you know, a lot of it is what strengths you have and playing to those strengths, going mm -hmm. into areas where your real strengths come to the fore. So, and working hard. And the other thing I recommend to people, and it's part of the theme of at least the beginning of my book, is have a plan. Mm -hmm. Don't just sort of waffle around it first and, you know, I'm not sure what I want to do. If you're at a point of complete, uh, you know, indifference or you just can't make up your mind, adopt a plan, start along that road, start that plan. But then also always be ready to depart from that plan and recognize other opportunities or experiment with other things. Some people get locked into a plan, and then it's almost like they're caught in a tunnel. Mm -hmm. They never really look beyond it. And um, so I said, get out there. Go to different you know, meetings. Participate in different things. Someone invites you to an interesting party with interesting people. Just don't just say, well, go. this doesn't fit yeah. into my plan. Go. You never know, yeah. you know what could come of that. So always be attuned to that. So that's my advice to people. Growing up and even in your youth, did you, do you feel like you always kind of had the answer because in the book, it looks like a lot of the times you were the one coming up with a correct response or a well, correct answer. Well, that's my book. Of course I'm going to well, say Well, and so, and so that, that's, that's why I want to get kind of behind that. And, you know, how many times looking back would you say, oh, my gosh, I was, I had that totally wrong. Guy screwed that up. Has, has that happened a lot? Or did you study a situation so deeply that you felt pretty confident in the way you approached it? So I think my own makeup is such that I generally will feel confident about a direction that I want to move in or recommend. But by the same token, I am not so cocksure that I will ignore others' advice. And one of the things I always wanted around me, because I can be a strong personality, is very strong people who would be willing to pound the table and yell right back at me. Mm -hmm. And I think those people who've worked with me over the years would say that, you know, I might go into a meeting and be very firm and pounding the table. And at the end of the day, and then after a while, I'd be sitting there thinking, and then I'd say, you're right. And I would just turn direction 180 degrees if I thought they were right. But, you mm -hmm. know, so going back to my dinner conversations with my sure. family, you know, you had to have some give and take. And people, you know, number one, uh, some people will get incapacitated because they can never work up the confidence in what they want to do. And I say, go with your best judgment. Go with your gut. You know, if your gut tells you something, go with it. And, you know, be open to other people pushing back. But just don't be incapacitated and not take a position. Right. Because then you never make any progress. A couple of questions before we wrap up, because I want to make sure we, we don't hold up too much more of your time. But one is, and this is a pretty simple question probably, how do you unwind? I mean, at the end of a day, you know, you come back home, but when you were AG or even now, how do you just kind of, what's your favorite thing to do to just well, chill out? I mean, as you can tell, I spend a lot of time at the gym. <laughs> For those, this is not a video, so people might not recognize that's a joke. <laughs> okay, but. I no, go to the gym I, all the time. I get a shake and then I leave. I understand. It's nothing like a good peanut butter smoothie. <laughs> I mean, on, on a typical work day, yeah. uh, I might have a scotch at the end of the day. Sometimes. Single malt. Single malt. Yes. With my, sometimes with my staff or people who work closely with me, we unwind at the end of the day. 
And, uh, you know, I, on weekends, I like going out in the country, doing things like shooting or, uh, you know, hiking or things like that. So if you ever invite me out to the country, I should probably not go. As a <laughs> Shooting birds. Oh, unless okay. you're a bird. Well, there you go. <laughs> you're okay unless you're a bird. <laughs> you know, I mean, a pheasant, you know, pheasant shooting sure, or sure. something like that. Gotcha. But, uh, you know, I play the bagpipes. I still like doing that. Very cool. Uh, and, and I read a lot. I mean, I'm a voracious reader. So, what kind of books do you like to read? I like, you know, I've basically history and biography. Okay. You know, people sort of settle into a certain genre, Absolutely. right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I just don't get that much out of fiction generally. Sure. And so I like history and biography. So final question before we wrap up, looking back on the trajectory of your life, and, and obviously you've still got a lot of, lot of years ahead of you, but as you look back, what would you say is your biggest blessing that you're most thankful for? And maybe your biggest regret, something you wish you would have done differently. My biggest blessing is the fact that my parents cared about and brought us up within, you know, a religious faith that is central to our lives. You're Roman Catholic, if right. I, yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's probably been the most important thing. And that's why I feel that's the greatest gift a parent can give a child uh, is, is faith so that, that's been the biggest blessing. And uh, probably my biggest regret, you touched on it at the beginning, is I, I, I wish there were deeper ways and continue, you know, ways that, that I could show my appreciation to my wife for her, you know, uh, just a great marriage with her and, and uh, what we've been through together with our children. It hasn't, it hasn't been all hunky-dory, you know, I mean, a lot. my kids have been sick and stuff like that, and we've been through some tough times, but she's always been a rock, and I couldn't have gotten through through it without her. So probably we should have had her on the podcast instead of him. I don't know what we're doing with, I don't know why we have you on here. We should have had Chris. <laughs> Sounds like she's the rock star. She, well, she gave me the advice before I went to the Trump administration, which is, you're never going to change this guy. It's a waste of time for you to go in and try to do it. And uh, nothing, no sacrifice you you make will will end up making a difference with him. So she was right about that. <laughs> well, guys, it looks like we're we've reached the end of our of our program and of our time. Bill Barr, thank you so much. I want to thank you for thank for being you, Rocky. With us. I, I've enjoyed it both this uh, podcast, but also the earlier interview. Absolutely, yeah. and we've covered a lot of ground. We did, we did, and I want to I want to remind folks that that you had, you had agreed and, in fact, requested the fireside chat format that we had upstairs, and you didn't put any restrictions on the types of questions or anything. And, and well, you was, know, one of the things talking to a big group, if you go in and you pick a topic and you start rant, you know, going on and on about a topic, you know, you never know whether people are really interested in it. I prefer answering questions that people are, want to hear about. So. And, and it, was, yeah. it was a pleasure. So yeah. thank you. And, guys, if you, if you haven't yet, check out Bill Barr's Memoirs. That that rhymes. We just we Bill just Bar's Bill Barr's memoirs. This is I think we we've got a we've got like a new hashtag. Right. It's called one damn thing after another. Check it out. And guys, that is all the time we have for this installment of State Bar of Texas podcast. I want to thank our guests for joining us, and of course, thank you, Bill Barr, and of course, thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard today, please rate and review us in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or best yet your favorite podcasting app. I'm Rocky Deer, signing off. Until next time, thank you all for listening. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Go to TexasBar.com slash podcasts. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find both the State Bar of Texas and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, 
Facebook and LinkedIn, or download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, the State Bar of Texas, Legal Talk Network, or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, or subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.